Jesus said the fields were white under the harvest, and we should pray that laborers would be sent into the harvest. Thank you, Leah. Second Corinthians chapter 5. I want to talk about team motivation this morning. How do you and I become motivated to do what God has clearly commanded us to do in His Word? What does it take to motivate a team? What does it take to get a team committed to a task? Well, there are some clear words in these verses before us about how the Bible team is supposed to be motivated, how the church team, the body of Christ, what it is that drives us and motivates us and compels us to do those things that God has commanded us to do. What gets us beyond just doing as little as possible and moves us out into an aggressive mentality of touching a world for Jesus Christ. The verses before you in 2 Corinthians 5 begin in verse 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope we are made manifest also in your conscience. You and I are only one heartbeat away from a fixed state of rewards be it joy or shame. That thought alone should get our attention. That we are one heartbeat away, one breath away from eternity. That when we close our eyes in this life, we open our eyes in the next life. The Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Then Paul reminds us that there is a judgment that is coming of believers, of their lives, of their stewardship, of their talents, of their time, of their energies, not of their salvation, not of their sin, but of their lives and the deeds done in the body in light of our understanding of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. The Scripture is very clear. As a man lives, he will die. Although we'll get a new body in heaven, there are no adjustments and no alterations made in heaven. Whatever you have in heaven, you will have put there before you get there. You will not create any new rewards once you die. Whatever you do for Jesus, you must do it in this life for it to be with you in that life. Whatever you plan to send ahead of you, you've got to send it now. You can't get there and reach back for it. This is a time when we need to evaluate our lives in light of one heartbeat and one breath. And the question that you and I need to ask ourselves is, am I now what I want to be then? There's going to come a day when there aren't going to be any more sermons. There won't be any more sign-ups. There won't be any more pleading or begging or arm-twisting. 
There won't be any more uh, plaintive cries. There won't be any more sermons. There won't be any more songs. There won't be any appeals on an emotional or psychological level. That day is going to be over. And what you are in the day that you die, you will always be. Are you now what you want to be then? Is your life now ready to meet Jesus Christ face to face? Are you prepared at this moment to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and to look the holy, sinless Son of God in the face who shed His blood for your life? Are you ready to look Him eyeball to eyeball and say, Jesus, I did what you asked me to do. I served the way you asked me to serve. I loved the way you told me to love. I gave the way you told me to give. I stand before you with no regrets because I lived my life to the maximum for your service. Are you willing and are you ready to face Jesus today? You see, there's going to come a time when there's not going to be any grace period. There may come a moment in your life when because of something that happens in your body, you don't have a moment to call and get something right or to rectify some situation or to restore some relationship or to deal with bitterness in your heart or to deal with some attitude or some situation that you have put off and put off and put off. Are you now what you want to be then? You got dressed up and cleaned up to come to church today, but did you clean up your heart? knowing that you are coming to meet Jesus today. Are you right now what you want to be for all eternity? Are you even shooting at it? Are you even pressing toward the goal? Are you even pursuing the prize? Because you see your destination and your rewards are all set on this side of the grave. Once the grave is faced then nothing else really changes. And so in light of this non-negotiable reality that the, we must all, and Paul doesn't say some of us, most of us, but all of us stand before the judgment seat of Christ, shouldn't it be our motive to please God with our lives? And if our motive is to please God with our lives then the issue is no longer what is God's will for my life. God's will is for me to please Him. God's will is for me to glorify Him. That's not the issue. The issue is how do I please God with my life? Not what. We know what. It's pleasing Him. It's glorifying Him. It's being ready to stand before Him. But how do we do that? How does that have specific application to my life? So... We come to the fact that there is a radical difference in the Christian life. Now, outwardly, we don't look a whole lot different. We mow our grass, and we buy our houses, and we buy our cars, and we uh, fix up our yards, and fix up our homes, and raise our kids, and get married. Hopefully you get married, and then you raise your kids, but we do all those things. I mean, we, we kind of got this thing, and outwardly, there doesn't look like a lot of difference. I mean, a Christian mowing his grass doesn't look any different than a lost person mowing his grass, except maybe the lost guy's got Bud Light on his shirt, and a Christian's got Jesus forever on his. That's about the only way you can tell the difference. But there is something inwardly different about them. Their direction, their goals, their interests, their attitudes, their response to situations should be diametrically opposed to one another. 
Jesus Christ was never intended to be on the circumference of our lives. He was never intended to be at the periphery and on the edges and pushed out to the sides where he is acknowledged on Sunday but absent during the week. He is to be the center of everything. So I conclude from that and from what the Scriptures teach me that the issue is not our knowledge. The issue is the application of what we know. Now, let's don't raise your hands because all of us are guilty. How many of you have heard something in a sermon in your life that you know you're supposed to be doing and you didn't do it? See, we're all guilty. There is a way to answer that question, though, because you have to answer it in light of the fact, what if that had been your last heartbeat when you knew to do that and you made the choice not to? You see, I have to live with the understanding that when I know to do something, and the Scripture says knowing what, to, what is right to do and not doing it is what? Sin. Knowing what is right to do and not doing it is what? Are you sure? God is. God is absolutely emphatic that when we know what is right to do and we don't do it, it is sin. You see, our problem is not knowledge. Our problem is application. We all know more than we're living up to right now. We've heard enough sermons and enough Bible studies. Very few people came to Bible study this morning to try to figure out how they're going to apply that to their lives this week. A lot of people came to Bible study this morning to hear the teacher pass on information so they can fill their heads but not take their feet and do something with it. You see, the key to Bible study is not what you get up here, it's what you do out there that gives evidence that you've got something up here. See, we get out in the world and we look like we're biblically illiterate. Because we don't live out and apply what we know in our heads. And the issue is application and how do we apply that? There has to be a motivation to do it. There has to be a motivation for us to move beyond knowledge and to move to application. There has to be a desire in us. You see, I can know a great deal about God. I can know that He has a plan for my life. I can know that He has a purpose for my life. I can know that I am to please Him and that the Scripture says that faith is the way that we please Him for without faith it is impossible to please God. I can know all those things and not do one thing about them. I can also look back in my life and know that there have been times when because I have obeyed God, because I have been sensitive to His Spirit, that I can see evidence of His blessing and His goodness and His grace on my life. And I can look back on those moments and say, you know, when I apply God's Word to my life, God blesses me. I can know all of that and still not be motivated to do it day in and day out. The issue is motivation. We know that from sports. I can remember when I was in college and, and I got to wear a Super Bowl ring. I happened to be at a church where Tom Goode was at. Tom Goode was the, was the center for the Baltimore Colts when they won the Super Bowl. And I put his ring on and his ring would cover those two fingers right there and I could still move it from side to side. That's pretty impressive hands right there, buddy. You don't want to get in, get in the way of that if it's on its way towards your face. Let me just assure you. But you know, I think about 
the Chicago Bulls trying to three with the three-peat and the Dallas Cowboys with the repeat and the successful teams. Well, how do you motivate a team once they've won the ring? There has to be something more than getting a piece of gold to wear on your finger to motivate you to do your best. And the constant pressure that a coach faces is how do I get this team motivated? Now that we've arrived at our goal, how do I get them motivated to keep pushing toward that goal? Because we've arrived, but we haven't. Because we've got a new game next week. We've got a new season next year. How do you motivate Christians who already know in their heads, well, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for us in heaven. There's all kind of crowns. I mean, I'm saved. There's nothing that can take away my salvation. I'm sealed in the Master's hand. How do you motivate somebody that's already got eternity in heaven to get there in a little bit better style? I think Paul deals with that. David dealt with it in the Psalms when he said, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days and let me know how transient I am. Tozer said that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. You see, for me to be motivated to do what God wants me to do, I have to be motivated by the proper concept of God. Because if I don't understand Him for who He is and who He's revealed to be in Scripture, I'm not going to be motivated to serve Him. If I bring God down to my level where He is acceptable to me and I don't have to become acceptable to Him, then I will never serve Him with all my heart. If God is just a glorified Santa Claus that gives out gifts to those who are good and those who are not, then I'll never serve Him with all my heart. You see, our concept of God and what He requires and what He demands and who He is motivates me to minister. And if I don't have the right concept, then my commitment to Christ and to the church and to ministry and to playing ball and to using my time and my talents and my tithe and my testimony and all those things that we hear about will weaken and wane and I will quit if I don't have the right concept of God. Only when I see God as He is, not as I want Him to be, will I have the motivation to do what He has called me to do. And the truth of the matter is, when you see God as He is, nobody has to prop you up to do your job for Jesus. Nobody has to pat you on the back, give you a certificate, give you a diploma, tell you how wonderful you are because you're only living for one well done anyway. It will not matter if the church says you did a well done if Jesus doesn't say it when you get there. It will not matter how many degrees are on your wall or how many certificates you've got. We try to award and applaud people, but I'm going to tell you, if people had the right concept of God, nothing else would be needed to motivate them to do what God wants them to do. And you wouldn't have to be motivated to sustain that effort and to give yourself to that cause because the motivation would be on who God is and what He's done for your life. You see, we are never given the liberty to make God fit our idea of acceptable Christianity. God's never given us that option. He has revealed Himself in His Word, and He has given us, through the writings of Paul, these pivotal words, two motivating factors to do what He's told us to do. Number one, there's the motivation of fear. 
Now I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. Hold your place in 2 Corinthians and turn to the book of Revelation if you would. In verse 11, I'll remind you that Paul said, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Let's talk about the meaning of the fear of the Lord. From Genesis to Revelation, the fear of the Lord is praised as a motivation for serving God. All through Scripture, you will find this phrase, the fear of the Lord. Does that mean that we're cowering before some big God that's going to beat us to a pulp if we don't do right? No, it means we have a humble reverence for God. All the way through Scripture, it's that attitude that Moses had when he walked up to the burning bush and God spoke to him out of the burning bush, which burned but was not consumed, and said, Moses, take off your shoes, son. You're on holy ground. Here's the way I try to describe it. Nobody is going to strut to the throne of God. That's the fear of the Lord. You know, we try to walk around and feel like we're somebody, we're something, and we're contributing something. I'm going to tell you, everybody's going to be humble before the throne. The big and the great, the well-known and the unknown will all be on their knees before the throne of God. That's the reverence and the fear of the Lord. It is recognizing who He is. It is having reverence for Him, honor for Him. It is being humble in His presence, knowing that He is the almighty, sovereign creator and ruler of this universe, and we stand before Him in the light of who we are as finite beings and who He is as infinite. That's the meaning. The psalmist said, Fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him there is no want. John, in writing the book of Revelation, uses this term, the fear of the Lord, several times. In chapter 11 and verse 18, he says, And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came. Now notice, he's going to refer back to what Paul has talked about in 2 Corinthians 5. And the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. There's going to be a time when we'll be judged, and our rewards will be given, and they will be given to those who fear thy name, who reverence God. That's the meaning of it. Chapter 14 and verse 7. Revelation 14 and verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. Chapter 15 and verse 4. Chapter 15 of the book of Revelation and verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come and worship before thee. For thy righteous acts have been revealed. And then in chapter 19 and verse 5. Chapter 19 and verse 5. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God. All you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. We are to honor the Lord. We are to give 
reverence to God. We are to worship God. We are to fear Him. Reverently fear Him for who He is. That is to be a prime motivational factor in our lives that we answer to a God that we must stand before. All of us must stand before at the judgment seat of Christ. Now the meaning of that motivates us to take the message to men. Once we understand that it is the fear of the Lord that motivates us, then the meaning of fearing the Lord motivates me to do something about what I know. And that is to take the message to man. Turn back to 2 Corinthians 5 and look at verse 19, if you will. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us. He did not say He has committed to preachers or evangelists. He says He has committed, notice, to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors of or for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says, I'm an ambassador. We are ambassadors. And God wants to speak through us a message to others. Now there are four facts that you and I need to understand about that message. The first fact is this. We are sinful. I don't think there's much debate about that. We're sinful. All of us were sinful. If you're saved, you're a saved sinner. We're all sinful. That's a fact. The second is that sin separated us from God. There was a wall dropped between man and God. And only Jesus Christ could take that wall down. Through His blood and through His sacrifice, our separation from God was broken down. And we could see not a wall, but we could see through the wall, see Jesus, and in Jesus we could see the love of God for us. Once we realized we were separated from God, we were saved. There was a point in time when we asked Jesus Christ to come into our heart, when we acknowledged Him as our Lord and as our Savior, when we confessed with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believed in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, and Paul says, thereby you're saved. Not by baptism, not by church membership, but we were saved because we realized we were sinners and we realized we were separated. Once we were saved, then we wanted to tell others how to be saved. It means that that is not an option for us. It means that our responsibility, our duty, based on our fear for the Lord and our reverence for God, knowing that those we meet will also face a judgment. Not the judgment seat of Christ, but the great white throne of judgment where they will spend eternity in the lake of fire called hell. That motivates us because we were once headed there, we were once bound there, but God gave us another heartbeat so that we could respond to the gospel and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that motivates me because I now have a ministry of reconciliation. And so I beseech you, on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. 
my role, my job, not as a preacher, but as a believer. And your role as a believer is to beseech people, to entreat people on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. You are His messenger. You are His minister. And you do that out of the fear of the Lord because you know that before you understood that, you were bound for hell and you know what the opposite choice of heaven is. And so it motivates you to take the message to men. Thirdly, the meaning impacts time and eternity. There are three responses that we make in time that will affect us in eternity. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. There is, first of all, going to be a reverent response. A reverent response. Isaiah chapter 6, I'll just read verses 1 and 5 and 8. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. It's a reverent response. You see, when you and I see God high and lifted up, then it makes us be willing to say, Lord, here I am. You can send me. Lord, I've seen you. Now remember where Isaiah saw him. Isaiah had lost Uzziah, who he had exalted in his own eyes. You see, for you to see God, something has to die in you so that God can be birthed in you. You have to die to your Uzziah, your method of salvation, your idea of deliverance, your security system, your buddy, your pal, your substantial influence, whatever it is you've got, you've got to die to that so that you could see the Lord high and lifted up. And when you see Him, you realize that you are unclean because you stand in the presence of a holy God. And then you begin to say, Woe am I! Woe! My life is horrible! My life is wretched! And God touches your life with the Holy Spirit of God. And then He says, Who can I send? And you say, Lord, you can send me. In fact, Lord, you can send me to my next door neighbors. Lord, you can send me across the street. You could send me to that lady that works in my office that drives me crazy. You can send me to that guy at work that's got the foulest mouth. You can send me to that person that I don't even like to be around, God. You can send me because I've seen you, and I know if I could just get them to see you, then you could send them too. You see, it's a reverent response. It's a repentant response, secondly. The psalmist said, Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart, but there is no fear of God before his eyes. 
God wants us to detect sin, not deny it. He wants us to reject sin, not embrace it. He wants us to die to self, not pamper ourselves. Transgression within our hearts, but there's no fear of God. Do you know why Christians can come to church with sin in their lives and unconfessed sin in their lives and go through invitation after invitation after invitation and never walk an aisle, never make a decision, never get right with God, never weep tears of repentance. It's because they have the heart of Saul, not the heart of David. And by the way, God rejected Saul. He accepted David. Both were great sinners. But Saul kept looking around saying, you know, the people made me do that. The people made me do it. They made me do that. And Saul repented, but he repented to man. He never repented to God. It's a repentant heart. David was a great sinner, but David was a greater repenter. You see, God's not interested in you pumping yourself up. God's interested in you letting yourself die so that Christ can live in you. And I do worry about the person that can go week after week and year after year and year after year Never be moved to walk an aisle. And although any one of 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 church members could say, you know, I see that person during the week, and they don't have any reverence from God outside the walls of the church. My friends, for you to be what God wants you to do, motivated by the fear of the Lord, there must be repentance. It is a missing word in the evangelical church. But there must be repentance, and then there must be a ready response, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, I'm going to have to prepare now for what I face then. The Greek word is bima. It is not a judgment of your salvation again. It's a judgment of your stewardship of your life. That's why the word steward is an important word in the Christian vocabulary. That's why stewardship is an important concept in the church. Not because it just addresses finances, that's a part of it, but because it addresses your life. The stewardship of everything that God has given you. You and I are going to one day stand before God alone. You will not go with your friends. You will not go with your family. Your mom's not going to be there to plead your case. Nobody else is going to stand by you. This church is not going to go as a whole. You and I will go individually. Jesus Christ will call our name out among the saved, and we will go and stand before the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. And at that seat... Our lives, our actions, our attitudes in light of our gifts and what He allowed us to have will be judged. You will have to give an account for the times when you said no when somebody asked you to serve. You will have to give an account for the times that you served, but you served to try to promote yourself in the eyes of other people. And God will say, that service was no good. That was wood, hay, and stubble. You will also give an account for the times that you thought were meaningless and nothing and insignificant when you gave a cup of cold water in somebody's name and God will say, I noticed that, nobody else did, but that is a well done from me. You see, what are you going to say? There should be the reverence for God that makes us realize that we will stand before Him and we will give an account and God will examine our lives and judge our lives and the stewardship of our lives and we must stand before Him. 
Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Stuart Briscoe said, We, in all our best intentions, we, in all our highest endeavors, we, in all our noblest desires, are totally incapable of bearing up under the awesome holiness, righteousness, justice, and judgment of God. We cannot do it any more than a spider's web can capture a rock. So you need to weigh your lives now in light of how He's going to weigh them then. You need to live your life in light of the Word of God now because you will stand in the light of God then. And you see, God will not be deceived or fooled. His judgment is going to be fair and impartial. He will not be moved by tears. He will not be swayed by emotional appeals. He will not listen to you justifying yourselves by what other people did or didn't do. He will look at you by yourself and me by myself, and He will say, you must answer for your life. You remember the old TV show, This Is Your Life? They haven't seen anything like what Jesus is going to do when we stand before Him and He opens the book of our life and says, I've got some things in your past that I want to bring up. See if you remember saying this unkind word. See if you remember saying no to this request. See if you remember holding on to this money. See if you remember keeping your time and your energy to yourself. See if you remember these things and voices and events and attitudes and actions are going to come into our ears and into our hearts and we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the one thing we'll be able to say is, God, you're right and I was wrong. No court of appeals, no court of a higher authority. It is the Supreme Court. And you and I will stand before Him, naked before God, with just our lives bearing witness or accusing us. We cover up real good, don't we? Not on that day. That day He will see us and we will be seen as we really are inside of our hearts. You and I will give an account. And by the way, you're just one heartbeat away from that happening. You're one breath away from never being able to change your eternal destiny or His eternal judgment. You're one inhale away from never being able to change your life again. The fear of God ought to do something in your life today. But you see, it's not just the fear of God. It's the love of God. There is a motivation that's higher than fear. Now, if you don't understand both aspects of this motivation, you will become legalistic in your thinking. And you will do things because you don't want to get caught with your hand in the cookie jar. You will do things because you don't want to get caught disobeying God because you don't want to get your hand slapped. 
There is a higher motivation, and Paul mentions it in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. There was a force that motivated Paul more than fear. Now, in his old way of life, fear had been present then when he was lost, when he was a very religious, pharisaical Jew. It was the fear of God. He had to protect the people of God. But when God struck him down on the road to Damascus, a new motivation entered Paul's heart. Not only fear, but love. You see, if you just fear that you're going to get caught, you'll not do some certain things, and you'll do certain things. Because we've all lived in enough environments where we know reward and consequences and all those things, and fear motivates us. But I'm going to tell you something. Fear won't motivate you long because you just keep putting off and saying, well, that's out there in the future. But I tell you what will motivate you every morning and every night and every day of your life. That's that the love of Christ would control you. That word control means to press or to urge or to move forward. It implies the pushing aside of self-interest. The love of Christ takes hold of us, if you will. The love of Christ controls us. Paul says, man, I know you folks think I'm crazy and you think I'm a religious fanatic and you think I've gone off my rocker. And the Corinthians were criticizing. Paul said, listen, if I'm a religious fanatic, I'm that way for you. If you think I'm a pretty sharp guy, I'm that way for you. I will, I'm whatever you think I am, but what I am is I am controlled by Christ. You can think whatever you want to think, but the thing you need to know is that one died for all, and that one died for me, and that one's love for me controls me. Now, what did Paul mean? Did he mean that it was Christ's love for Paul that controlled him? Or did he mean that it was Paul's love for Christ that controlled him? Or did he mean that it was because of Christ's love and his love for other people that controlled him? Well, there's three options. All three are permissible in the Greek text. In fact, I believe that all three are necessary for us to have the manifestation of the gospel. And the reason I see that is found in 1 John chapter 4. Turn there, if you would, very quickly. 1 John 4. You see, when God touches our hearts, the end result is that we love God and we also love others. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, it's not because we have to, it's because we want to. There is a greater motivation than fear and duty, and it is love. Gentlemen, I'm going to tell you, it is not the fear of you or the duty of being a wife 
that makes your wife get up after working all day herself and taking care of the kids and doing everything else when you plop down on the couch and say, Honey, would you get me a glass of tea? It's not fear and duty. It's love that gets her up to do that for you. It's not because of a checklist. It's because of an attitude of a heart. And guys, when she asks you to do something, it's not fear or duty. It's love that makes us do that. You see, the greatest motivation in my life is not the fear of the judgment seat of Christ. The greatest motivation in my life has to be that it is God loved me when I was an unlovely person. And He saved me when I didn't deserve to be saved. And He loved me when I was full of sin and rebellion against Him. And because He loved me, I love Him. Because He first loved me, He gave me a love to love Him. And when I love Him, He says, I've got some other people I want you to love. And that's the motivation. You see, obedience and duty are easy when love is the motivating factor. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He did not say, if you keep my commandments, you'll love me. He just said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He says in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 5, He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves. That's pretty simple, isn't it? <laughs> he died for you and He died for me so that you would no longer live for yourself. Now, what should be our goal? It should be fourfold, I think. Number one is that we should glorify the Son of God with our lives. Secondly, that we should magnify the Word of God in our hearts. If you want to have a fear of the Lord and if you want to have a love for God, these are things that have to be a part of your life. The glorifying of the Son of God, the magnifying of the Word of God, the edifying of the church of God with your gifts, and the satisfying of the heart of God by your commitment. I want to ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 19. And to stand with me, if you would, as we come to the end of this message in a time of commitment. You may not have been here last week. You may not have had an opportunity to fill out that card. And we want to give you an opportunity to take it, fill it out, bring it back tonight, or bring it here to the front this morning, whatever you might want to do. But I want to ask you that if you need a card, you can pick one out of the pew. But I want to ask you to take your Bible, please. Turn to 2 Chronicles 19, and would you stand with me, please? Second Chronicles 19 and verse 4, these are words about Jehoshaphat, who lived in Jerusalem, and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And he appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord your God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. And in Jerusalem also Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests, some of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel, for the judgment of the Lord and to judge disputes among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they charged them, saying, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord faithfully 
and wholeheartedly. Now I want to ask you to let me, if you would, take that passage and update it to where we are and to update it to what we're talking about with playing ball and serving God and serving Him with the right kind of motivation. Then the pastor went out and among the members from Albany to Sylvester to Leesburg to Dawson and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And he appointed ministers and servants in all the ministries of Sherwood. And he said to the ministers and servants of God, Consider what you are doing. You do not serve for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you serve. Now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or serving for self-glory. And in the church, the pastor also appointed staff members and deacons and others for the oversight of the Lord's ministry to evaluate the effectiveness of our ministry to the community. And then he charged them, saying, Thus you shall do in the fear and love of the Lord faithfully and wholeheartedly. You see, it's not because the pastor asked you. It's not because there's a card to sign and you don't want to look bad if you haven't signed a card. It's because you fear God, but more than that, you love Him. And if that won't motivate you, all the preaching for the rest of eternity won't motivate you. It has to start in here. And it has to start with you. I can only be a prompter. You have to be the one that responds to what the Holy Spirit says to you. You're the one that's accountable for your life. I'm accountable for mine. I have to do what God tells me to do. And you must do those things that God equips you to do. Would you pray with me, please?